Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. So it's conference season again, which means there's a whole heap of material that I can share for the podcast. Unfortunately, sometimes when you have a podcast, life gets in the way of things. Um, Andrew recently got married. I have a child. We're both doing PhDs and, you know, life just happened. But I thought I'd share some of my recent research work. I have a few papers that I'm delivering this month and um, two of them in particular are relevant to the topic of this podcast. So I'm going to um, talk about in this episode the use of the label radical in Indonesia in the current political climate. Um, this paper is called Hardline Moderates, um, The Politics of Islam. In Indonesia. So, in Indonesia, addressing ideological expressions of extremism within the faith of Islam has become a strong focus for terrorism prevention. There have been multiple movements proposed by mainstream moderate Muslim groups. There's been Nusan, Islam Nusantara, Islam Burkhamadjuan, a whole range of movements aimed at promoting a moderate. Islam as an antidote to the extremism which is considered to drive terrorism. I'll give you some examples. Um, Professor Dr. Bambang Prawano, um, he recently said that strengthening a moderate and tolerant understanding of Islam is one of the weapons to prevent the entry of radical groups and terrorism such as ISIS. And um, a university chancellor, Professor Yudian Wahyudi, recently said last month that we need to spread moderate Islam on our campuses and instill the values of Panchasila, the state ideology, to prevent acts of terrorism and radicalism. But I ask just how useful this type of approach is in terrorism prevention. Why is moderate Islam deemed an appropriate antidote to the extremism that drives terrorism? And in the current political climate, why are some extremisms deemed riskier than others? This is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to argue for this paper in particular that the label radical whilst it is an important definitional tool in terrorism prevention, of course, the label is also being instrumentalised by the state and those in positions of power to repress certain forms of criticism and to silence those considered a threat to the government and those in positions of power. While illiberal elements through the form of Islamist movements have indeed emerged as a threat to democracy, in the current political climate, the label radical and Islamist has also been used to silence certain people. So who is labelled a radical in the current climate? Well, some of the main groups that are deemed problematic for their extremism in Indonesia 
include communities from the Wahhabi, Salafi, and the now banned Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia movement, which I will um, go into a little bit deeper soon. However, leaders from these communities themselves are increasingly launching their own counterclaims, arguing that the attribution of certain expressions of faith as being risky forms of extremism are attempts to silence and politically marginalise them rather than to prevent terrorism because some of these groups have come out and overtly um, expressed their support for terrorism prevention. So this has created not only a tension in the dynamics of terrorism prevention in Indonesia where differentiating between extremism and violent extremism is proving challenging, it's also having implications for democratisation and freedom of expression. So I'm going to briefly provide some political background to all of this. From 2017 evidence emerged that the Jokowi government had started to take an authoritarian stance on things, contributing to the deterioration of Indonesia's democratic status. Jokowi appointed um, political loyalists to significant positions of power in the security forces in both the police and the military. This has resulted in the instrumentalisation of the security forces and has also allowed the Jokowi administration to charge political opponents. Conveniently dropping matters when opponents fall silent or switch sides. These actions are part of a wider pattern under the Jokowi administration in which state security institutions have been politicised to advantage the president and his allies. Tom Power, um, one of my PhD colleagues at ANU, explains this really well. He's written quite a lot about this. He says that although the politicisation of legal and law enforcement institutions is not a new phenomenon in Indonesia, the government's efforts to use legal instruments in this manner has become far more open and systematic under Jokowi. I'm now going to talk about the proposal to purge anti-Panchasila Islamists and radicals from the public service in Indonesia and explain how the Jokowi regime has um, also used um, non-state actors to fight um, those with with Islamist goals. Again, so I'm going to quote, I'll paraphrase Aaron Connolly again, Um, He explained recently that this politicisation is occurring against the backdrop of um, another trend fueling uncertainty, which is the indication that Jokowi is preparing to purge the security forces and civil service of so-called Islamists and extremists. Very vaguely defined, I might add. This has already occurred in a way with the banning of certain organisations and with the use of labels such as radical, Islam, Islamist, anti-Panchasila and pro-Khalafa to silence and discredit certain groups and institutions. This trend is degrading of freedom of speech, in my opinion, freedom of association and is producing an environment of toxic discourse through securitising labelling, all of which can also contribute to greater political polarisation. 
So now that I've briefly talked about the social political context, <coughs> I'm going to explain how this is sort of playing out in contemporary Indonesia. I'm going to start with how the state dealt with um, the banning of Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia. So although there has been an increase in religious conservatism in society in general, and although there are growing groups of illiberal groups, uh, illiberal Islamists who are anti-democratic, and although there is a real threat of terrorism stemming from certain organisations, there is also a parallel trend emerging, which is alarming. That is a delineation between the Indonesian moderate nationalist and the so-called radical Muslim who is framed as a security threat. I'm going to argue that not all hardline Muslims, of course, are security threats. In this climate, well, this type of ultra-nationalist moderate sees the integrity of Indonesia's unity as sacrosanct, as with the Panchasila, the state ideology, and something to be protected at all odds, even if it means using anti-democratic measures. In this climate... When a certain group is labelled a security threat, it means that extraordinary measures, such as securitisation, can be utilised against these communities in order to maintain the security status quo, or the socially constructed security status quo. As with what happened with his book Dahria in 2017, and which I later show is incrementally being used to delegitimise those who critique the government. Before I talk about the banning of Hizbut Tahrir, I'm going to go into some of the elements of um, the theoretical elements of securitization that I use here. So the securitized there's a whole host of literature about the securitization of um, Muslims in the context of um, national security. So the securitization of Muslims in Muslim majority societies, however, um, is a field that there is a a lot less literature on. So the securitization of Muslim in Muslim-majority societies differs in its form when compared to the securitization of Muslims in the West. The theoretical foundations of the securitization of Muslims asserts that criticisms towards certain forms or sects of Islam, particularly in the security context, serves to construct certain people or groups as a threat. I argue that currently the securitizing of particular groups is becoming a tool of political expediency. I argue this because in Indonesia over the past five years, organisations with no ties to terrorism or violence have been banned with the accusation that they presented a threat to security because they were anti-Panchasila or anti-state ideology. And I'm quoting a whole... Um, host of scholars here, Meetsner, Jackie Baker, Ian Wilson, Tom Power, Aaron Connolly, uh, Greg Feely, the list goes on. In this way, the projection of a moderate nationalist Panchasila is sacrosanct. Those who challenge it, the radicals, are a threat to national stability. In a way, the current framing of the Hilafa threat almost mirrors the way that communists was painted as a threat. 
So the basic, um, I'm quoting Aslan's work here on um, securitizing, the securitization of Muslims in Muslim-majority countries here. So paraphrasing, sorry. The basic political function of securitizing certain groups is to keep them outside the political community by turning them into an enemy. This serves to draw boundaries and differentiate the modern moderate from the backward or dangerous Muslim. That is why in many Muslim-majority countries, political life is often determined and polarised by this um, dichotomy between the moderate and the, between moderate secularists and, so, and religious conservatives. So whilst members of Indonesian, Indonesia's political elite, in, elite indeed embrace Islamic symbols and practice and also embrace some rather um, socially conservative elements, including their stance on um, their, um, you know, anti-LGBT and so on, they also make certain forms of Islam and certain Muslims the enemy in A, their struggle to produce a modern, moderate, nationalist political discourse, and B, to silent certain forms of political dissent. So I'm going to show how this is manifested in uh, Jokowi's term and how it contributes to democratic decline. I'm going to talk about Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia now. Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia emerged as one mass movement of many whose central beliefs challenged the state by demanding that the state be replaced with a caliphate. Marcus Mietzner explains this in this way. The threat to democracy that such Islamists presented was compounded substantially by the government's response to that very threat. The government sought to ban Hizbut Tahrir, but used anti-democratic methods to do so. In lieu of banning Hizbut Tahrir, the government co-opted youth militia wings from the moderate Muslim organisation NU. And so the national Muslim state, Muslim-majority state, aligned organisations um, most vocally opposed to radical Islam to do um, part of their work in, in, in shutting down the group. So instead of systematically presenting the legal reasons for prosecuting Hizbut Tahrir in Indonesia activities, the state relied on alliances with non-state militias to pursue their agenda in ways that are unsuited for democracy's defence, particularly democracy's defence against Muslim populace. The normalisation of security exceptions relies on the claims that the integrity of Indonesia and the state is under threat from these vaguely defined radicals. This acts to justify and normalise the state's exceptionalism in its security-driven actions targeting specific extremists, both violent, not yet violent, and explicitly non-violent extremists. In this way, certain Islamist goals are constructed as a national security threat and anti-democratic measures become justifiable. But the government is not only targeting Islamists nowadays with the label radical. 
In fact, in recent months in Indonesia, defenders of democracy have been labelled radicals. The government's attempt to protect the democratic status quo from Islamist actors in this way has become a threat to democracy itself. These trends have set Indonesian democracy into what Mitsna um, Tom Power and others um, describe as a slow but perceptible process of democratic deconsolidation. So I'm going to talk about how democratic actors are being framed as radicals. In September in Indonesia, mass protests were staged. Students and activists were protesting amongst other things, the weakening of the Corruption Commission, worsening forest fires not being dealt with by government, increased militarisation in Papua, exploitation of farmers and workers, exploitative privatisation laws and, of course, democratic regression. No, they weren't protesting the bonking ban as um, Channel 9 would have you believe. Tens of thousands of students and activists took their street, um, their protest to the streets and demanded legislators and the government halt passage of the controversial laws. In particular, a decision to rush through a revised law on the KPK, Indonesia's Corruption Eradication Commission, would act to severely weaken the corruption watchdog by undermining their independence and limiting their powers of investigation. Note for background, this isn't the first time um, that government has tried to weaken the Kapika. Um, the political process of weakening the group um, attempted to um, occurred through efforts to revise law number 30 of 2002 um, twice during the Yudiono government in 2010 and 2012. But... It always failed due to strong rejection from civil society. Although students and activists were protesting the weakening of democratic institutions, there were attempts to frame the movements as radicals um, or as being influenced or infiltrated by Islamists and even terrorists. Once, Indonesia's security minister hinted that there were terrorists and pro-Khalifa organisers amongst the student movement, and the security minister's claims were backed up by nationalist social media influencers who made alarmist allegations that pro-caliphate organisations were actually behind the student protests and that the protests were an Islamist conspiracy aimed at discrediting the moderate Jokowi regime. That was... The latter was... um, ultra-nationalist social media influences, not Wiranto. Not During mass demonstrations, students and activists were particularly vocal about proposed legislative changes that would um, weaken the Corruption Commission. But it is interesting to note that in the weeks leading up to these decisions to rush through legislative changes that would weaken the Commission, the Commission itself was also labelled a hotbed of radicalism in a tactic that mirrors attempts to discredit elements of the student movement. Members of the Corruption Commission have been targeted for their personal religious beliefs in an effort to discredit the organisation. 
a senior investigator of the commission, a practising Muslim who's embraced elements of the socially conservative Hijra Muslim lifestyle, has been particularly singled out by opponents of the institution as part of a radical sleeper cell, which is ridiculous. Such determinations were largely driven in commentary by his style of dress as being in the sunnah style, his pants above his ankles, having a long beard and so on. One of the commission's deputy chairmen asked the public, of course, not to label someone a terrorist due to their manner of dress. He said, Allegations like these basically equate the labelling of someone as a terrorist because of their beard and moustache pants, clothes or shoes. Analysts, however, have noted that the allegation appears to be aimed at slandering the commission so that the community would support the legislative changes aimed at weakening it. So the Corruption Commission has had to continuously publicly defend itself and even worked with the National Terrorism Coordination Body in order to prove that there were no radicals or potential terrorists in the organisation. But I think one of the most revealing statements from this whole episode um, was by Novel Baswadan himself, the senior um, corruption investigator who... Um, has been most uh, strongly targeted by these attempts to frame his, him as a radical. He said recently, labels such as radical are now being used in the same way that the label communism was used during the New Order era, which was used to silence those opposing the government. Appeals to extremism can only really be marginalised if leaders are committed to democracy. But anti-democratic means are increasingly being used to marginalise those considered, in inverted commas, dangerous. I've shown how the label radical has been used to, to delegitimise criticisms of government. If Muslim moderate organisations, pro-government nationalists and political leaders continue to instrumentalise the threat of radicalism for political ends, what does this ultimately mean for actual counter-terrorism and counter-radicalisation work? But more importantly, where does this leave democratic reform? When the staunchly de democratic anti-corruption commission is labelled a hotbed of radicalism for the length of an investigator's pants and student protesters are hinted at as, as harbouring terrorists within their groups, you know there is a problem emerging. Paying lip service to a mythical, moderate Islam, while eroding the rights of minorities and human rights in general, appears to be a tactic of the current regime. A militant, nationalist, Muslim moderate identity has emerged in the past five years, and democratic reform has been sidestepped for national security and the sake of so-called national unity. But who the state labels radical is important and needs to be considered because all of this contributes to democratic decline in Indonesia. Mm -hmm.